Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Native researchers are looking into the intersections of traditional culture and language and modern methods of healing. And they're getting recognition for their ability to raise awareness for the importance of culture when it comes to mental and physical wellness. For many Native Americans, culture and language is already inseparable from all aspects of daily life. Coming up, we'll hear how acknowledging that is an important tool for health and balance. We're back right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Shareholders of Sea Alaska will vote in June on whether or not to get rid of a blood quantum requirement for descendant shareholders. Sea Alaska is the regional Alaska Native Corporation of Southeast Alaska. When the corporation was formed under the Alaska Native Claim Settlement Act, or ANCSA, only Alaska Native people in Southeast Alaska who were already born could be shareholders. Those people are original shareholders. In 2007, those shareholders voted to allow their descendants to enroll, but only if they had one quarter blood quantum and had proof of it on a certificate of Indian blood from the U.S. government. The Alaska surveyed its shareholders last year and more than two-thirds of the respondents said they want to get rid of the blood quantum requirement. 4,000 shareholders took the survey, which is around 17 percent of Sea Alaska's 23,000 shareholders. In the survey, people who want to get rid of the requirement say it's keeping their children and grandchildren out of the corporation, and it's keeping them from learning about their culture. They say that blood quantum is a colonial construct created by the federal government to erase Native people, and that's not how Native people identify themselves. People who took their survey also have concerns with letting more shareholders in because it will dilute their stocks and dividends will be smaller. And they don't want smaller dividends to negatively impact elders. If the requirement is eliminated, Sea Alaska estimates about 10,000 more people would be eligible to enroll. Shareholders will be able to vote online in May up to Sea Alaska's annual meeting in June. The meeting will be live streamed and in person in Juneau. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is recognizing the health disparities faced by Alaska Natives and American Indians and efforts to advance health equity and observance of National Minority Health Month. Dr. Shea Welch is Senior Policy Advisor for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Welch says while racial and ethnic minority groups have experienced high rates of COVID-19, hospitalizations and deaths, the inequities for Native people have been longstanding. The inequities that you know, we're looking at those social determinants of health um, have historically prevented us as having the same opportunities for economic, physical, emotional health. I mean, look at our suicide rate and our, our, our uh, substance use rate. It was sky high prior to this pandemic and look at it now. Welch says drawing attention to one month to really focus on minority health is a way to examine the social determinants of health, including how limited economic opportunities, limited health services, limited or poor housing conditions impact the health of Native people. It's all interconnected, as we all know. Everything is related. So I think it's important that we focus on this. Um, I'd like to focus, and we will be focusing on it more than one month out of the year, but for sure calling it out. 
April is National Minority Health Month. The Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma recently revised its Public Health Wellness Act in order to build drug treatment facilities. The tribe is using opioid settlement funds to help improve the overall wellness of Cherokee citizens. The signing of the revised law earmarks $15 million over the next three years for construction. The Cherokee Nation has finalized a settlement with drug distributors and has a tentative agreement with the drug maker. Those are worth millions of dollars. The tribe is evaluating how to use the opioid settlement funds for other projects, including for behavioral health. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by the Albuquerque Hispano Chamber of Commerce's Convention and Tourism Department, providing complete convention and visitor planning services to Hispanic and Native American conventions. Information on convention and tourism services at ahcnm.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Being connected to your tribe's culture and language could contribute to a person's overall health and wellness. That may not be news to many of our listeners, but researchers don't know much about the science behind it. How does being connected to Native culture and spirituality promote wellness? How can it be used in clinical practice? Fortunately, a handful of Native academics and health researchers have been studying those questions. Their work is a direct response to Western medicine delegitimizing indigenous traditions. Coming up this hour, we'll talk with a researcher whose work is being praised by the American Psychological Association. You can join us. How does your knowledge of indigenous healing and wellness work or clash with Western practices? How does your tribe's culture come into play in healing circles and local wellness programming? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Phone lines are open. Joining us today from Bozeman, Montana, is Dr. Joseph Gahn. He's a professor of anthropology and a professor of global health and social medicine at Harvard University, a clinical community psychologist and president of the Society of Indian Psychologists. He's Aani Grovan. Welcome to Native America Calling, Joseph. Thanks, Sean. It's really good to be with you here today. Joining us from Columbia, Missouri, is Dr. Melissa Lewis. She's an assistant professor at the University of Missouri, and she's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Welcome back to NAC, Melissa. Thanks for having me, Sean. And joining us here in the studio today is Jonathan Sosi. He is a first-year medical student at the University of New Mexico Medical School. He is Dene. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is an honor. Absolutely. I'd like to begin our conversation today with Joseph. And Joseph, 
congratulations on your recent award for Distinguished Professional Contributions to Applied Research from the American Psychology Association. Tell us more about that award and the research you did to earn it. Sure, Sean. Well, I've been studying for 25 years alternative ways that Native communities try and conceive the behavioral health services that they provide. Many of the counseling and psychotherapeutic approaches that dominate behavioral health um, are based on assumptions and orientations that come ultimately from you know, Western Europe and many of our traditions and orientations and perspectives, especially for more traditionally minded Native folks, are different. And so the kinds of healing or therapeutic activities that one would endeavor to uh, help folks uh, need to be a little different. And my career has been devoted to trying to unpack and articulate what those differences might be, how they look. I've done so through published articles and chapters. And I think that's why the American Psychological Association was willing to recognize that work, because it's a little different and unusual. So, Joseph, what is the history of indigenous healing in terms of it being recognized in Western medicine and treatment? Yeah, you know, um, there are actual journal articles in psychiatry journals from the 60s and 70s where different psychiatrists who are working with Native clients and patients were collaborating with Indigenous traditional healers uh, to figure out how best to put services together to help individual patients. So it's been around for, you know, um, several decades in terms of the interest in combining, integrating, um, or in some way interfacing across those different traditions. I think you still see that today. One model is that there's separate domains, but you just try to make sure a patient has access to both of them. That's a very common approach. Another approach is to try to integrate uh, traditional healing logics, rationales, and practices into biomedical services or healthcare facilities. Um, that's probably most prevalent in Indian country in our substance abuse treatment programs, um, but it's also the case in many, for example, urban Indian health organizations where there's some traditional component as well as uh, biomedical services. So there's a lot of ways that people mix these or blend these or ensure patients and clients have access to them. So overall, though, when we look at Western behavioral health programs and methods, just how involved are Native people in those discussions and those programs in that methodology? Yeah, those sorts of programs and approaches are designed and developed by, you know, mental health professionals and research scientists who are not Native and know almost nothing about Native communities. So um, the engagement of Native people starts to happen at the level of our own community service delivery. And what's really interesting is since self-determination, when tribes can contract or compact for health service funding to run our own services, that's where you start to see people saying, hey, maybe we need to do it this way to better serve our own people. And so innovations and alterations happen in ways that are quite exciting to track, to understand, and to uh, share with the broader health community who maybe hasn't thought about it from that perspective. Now, Joseph, in a recent article in Indian Country Today, you shared a, a humorous but powerful story of when you met with a group of Blackfeet traditional leaders regarding the use of formal evaluation for addiction treatment. Can you tell us more about that convening you had? Yeah, sure. So um, some years ago, I approached the leadership of the Blackfeet Nation Substance Abuse Treatment Program and invited them to join a project where we together would see about developing addiction treatment there that centered and built upon Blackfeet therapeutic tradition first and foremost, instead of, say, AA, which is the typical way this is done. They were very excited, and the process we engaged in involved consulting uh, traditionalists, uh, bundle keepers and ceremonial uh, people, 
And what they came up with was um, what we call the Blackfeet Culture Camp, a really different way to think about addiction treatment. But one key moment in that process is when I and the addiction treatment's cultural counselor, Danny Edwards there at Blackfeet, went to a traditional lodge of the Crazy Dog Society. We were kind of on their agenda to ask for their help. And the ceremony happened. We were there a couple hours, and then it was our turn. And I thought Danny would present this you know, request. He said, Joe, take it away. So I said, look, we would love to have your help in developing a Blackfeet alternative approach to addiction treatment, um, but we would love also to have a chance to do some evaluation because most people in the scientific world do not yet know that our cultural traditions and practices can remedy addiction. And as soon as I said that, the lodge erupted with laughter. It was just uh, an uproar <laughs> of hilarity because they just could not believe that people didn't understand that connection. The leader, in fact, said, look, every single person in this lodge is living proof that cultural traditions and practices remedy addiction. So we know that information on a personal level, on a community level, like what you described, but we still need that data, though, don't we, to, to, to really prove that it works? Data can be really helpful because there are lots of skeptics in the world. Um, many non-Native people know nothing about these traditions. And you can imagine there are lots of claims. Just turn on your TV or go on the Internet and you'll find all kinds of people promoting their you know, medicines or their approaches as if they're miracle cures. And so part of what um, healthcare uh, professionals and gatekeepers are doing is trying to protect you know, the public, especially when they're, when they're at very vulnerable points in their lives, from being taken in by charlatans. So, you know, of course, we don't want our people taken by charlatans either. So, you know, evidence matters a bit when you're trying to assure that this actually helps people in the way that's being promoted. And that's sort of what's behind the effort to evaluate. So including all of this indigenous knowledge and these cultural practices, it all sounds wonderful. But what does it actually look like in a clinical setting? Well, I, you know, I partnered a long time with the Urban Indian Health Clinic in Detroit, and in their programs, you know, they have a whole treatment uh, formulation or assessment model, a treatment planning process that incorporates, you know, smudging perhaps traditional practices, being referred to a traditional healer or a traditional practitioner. And they might use the medicine wheel as a way of talking about people's uh, distress, you know, both in um, across all domains of human experience, body, mind, spirit, and emotion. So there are all kinds of ways that these traditions and practices are taken up in the therapeutic encounter as long as you have therapists who are exposed to them and understand them and ideally are native and know how uh, to work with clients in this modality. Now, are there some unique training opportunities for therapists that work in these environments so they really understand the significance of what these cultural practices are? Yeah, so I'm um, president of the Society of Indian Psychologists. I mostly know about this work in the psychology field. Um, there are certain internships which are required of professional psychologists for, as part of their training for a year. They can go and work in a few settings that work and focus on Native clients, and those are places where you could get exposed to how to think and approach um, in a way that's a lot more culturally sensitive and nuanced. It's a little hard to imagine like a non-Native person truly getting trained up in all that would in, be entailed in traditional healing. So, you know, there needs to be joint relationships and mutual responsibility and coordination of care across these domains in most instances. Now, you mentioned working with the Urban Indian Health Center there in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, of course, you know, we do have many Native urban populations. And I'm curious, when we talk about these indigenous cultural and spirituality benefits to uh, Native health, does the 
Does the method differ from a rural or reservation-based setting as opposed to an urban setting? I think it really does. I mean, one big distinction is that urban communities often have people from 100 different tribal nations represented. And so any healing traditions you settle on have to be either uh, acceptable to a pretty broad swath of that group and others have to be like open to participating in it which would be pretty different than a reservation-based community, especially a single tribe or with two tribes, where, you know, the traditions are much more uh, distinctive to a particular people. Um, And so, but it's also the case that there's a wide variety across reservation settings. So, you know, if you go to, as Jonathan, I'm sure will tell you, like Diné, you're going to find very, very intact kinds of ceremonial procedures that people can undertake that is a kind of doctoring, indigenous doctoring. But what we have in a lot of our reservation communities, you know, in substance abuse treatment and so on, is less that old-style ritual doctoring and more like um, a mix or a blend of, of healing that instead of calling it curative healing, like doctoring, we might call it transformative healing, which is kind of getting you oriented and mobilized on a therapeutic journey that carries you into a better life over time. Well, Joseph, thank you for explaining um, how those uh, clinical applications work in these different settings, because, yeah, the the cultural diversity amongst our many Native nations is certainly uh, very, very significant, and it's great to know that those approaches and those issues are considered when designing these programs. Folks, if you have a question or comment for today, again, we were talking about Indigenous and in cultural practices in, in mental health, 1-800-996-2848. That is the number to call. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce, and we're going to be back right after a short break. The availability of legal cannabis continues to expand, and tribes are among those looking to cash in. The potential market for THC in all forms is promising in states that allow retail sales. But there are cautions and pitfalls, too. We'll get an update on tribes and legal weed on the next Native America Calling. CMS programs are available to help manage diabetes in our communities. Enroll today. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the recognition of indigenous healing ways in Western medicine. We're talking with Joseph Gaughan, who is being honored by the American Psychological Association for his research on psychological knowledge for indigenous people. And we have other guests on our show today as well. And we'd like for you to join a conversation. How do you see hospitals and clinics integrating native healing or culture in your community? We are at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. So please give us a call. Share your thoughts. Let's bring another voice into the conversation now. We have Dr. Melissa Lewis. Melissa, please uh, expand on what Joseph was talking about earlier. Why is it so important for indigenous culture, spirituality, and healing to be recognized in these areas of mental health that we're talking about? Yeah, sure. 
And first, um, again, congratulations to, to Dr. Gon. I think his his work has been very helpful for scholars like myself, especially around the, the Blackfeet culture camp. And, and you know, I, I think he, he did a good job of sort of sharing why this is important. You know, some people might argue, maybe some people who um, in that story um, were laughing, that maybe this isn't really as important for Indigenous people as it is important for our healthcare systems so we can have access to the kind of care that we need for policies. Um, I know right now some people are working on certification processes for elders and residents or traditional healers to ensure that they uh, get the recognition, the reimbursement, and the respect that they deserve. So I think this works uh, this work helps to move that forward. Um, I know there's been sort of a heated debate uh, peripherally, I know about it in Aotearoa with folks, you know, uh, actually tearing down traditional uh, indigenous knowledge, traditional ecological knowledge. And, um, you know, that is really, that is really problematic for indigenous people. It's another form of bias, racism and discrimination and just continued colonization, which, you know, uh, we know is related to, um, you know, problems in our in our health and well-being. Yeah, certainly. And I'm glad you mentioned these Western biases that don't always acknowledge the role and the value of indigenous knowledge in so many of these different settings and applications. But I'm curious to learn more just exactly how do these connections to culture and language, how do they actually promote healing on a scientific level, it's fascinating. Well, I'm not sure if I have the answer to that question, but um, you know, I I was trained in behavioral health, and my my current research is on the health effects of of traditional indigenous culture. So I can give you a couple of examples uh, of that. You know, one program that was created by and for Cherokees in the 1980s, we were able to follow this program in which uh, Cherokee youth learn Cherokee culture, language, and history over a six-month period of time. And we followed them, and we we gathered data on their physical health, uh, their mental health, and their cultural health. And we found improvements in all of the domains um, when they when they completed the program. And at the six-month follow-up, we found that it was statistically significant, this program, in, in um, improving positive mental health, reducing depression, um, and reducing stress and anxiety. So this is, it was kind of an exciting finding because there was not one hint of uh, Western uh, programming as far as mental health intervention. This is an example of culture as prevention. And, you know, there's, there's many other studies happening um, around this sort of topic, culture as intervention, culture as prevention. A, another really exciting one was a study done in 2016 uh, by uh, Waylon Moss and Baldwin, and they found that traditional language maintenance, use, and revitalization was related to improved mental health, um, social health, and physical health. And uh, we're working to um, actually redo that article right now and, um, and see how traditional language use impacts the health of Native people. But 
the trends so far say that uh, it is good for us. And I, I suppose maybe some of the other folks on the call can talk to the mechanisms, but I think the connection is one of the most important parts of these physical and mental health outcomes, being connected to your family, to your tribe, and to a community are, are critical aspects of well-being for all humans. Certainly so. And what you described just sounds so promising. All these areas of health, physical, mental, spiritual health, just these benefits from, from being exposed to this type of, of healing approach is just so, so inspiring to hear about. And earlier we heard Joseph talk about some of these practices, smudging, the medicine wheel, some talking circles. Are there other aspects of, um, of cultural practices that, that you've learned about or that you've seen that have been really successful in, in getting these improved health outcomes for, for Native communities? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, with the first program uh, that I shared about uh, with, with Cherokee youth, we're kind of working to build on that and try to find those active ingredients, the key ingredients that really related to both that improvement in mental health and we also found an improvement in cultural identity. And, you know, uh, traditional food systems, uh, food is a very important part of culture. Um, But another aspect that we're really, really trying to dive into is is a language. And so, you know, we've been working with behavioral health services and elders to learn about um, our language. One of our elders, um, Mr. Tom Belt, says when you go into the Cherokee language, you go into a different prism. You could be in a room and then you speak Cherokee and you're transported to a whole other place. So we found that people who are learning the Cherokee language have reported reduced anxiety. And we believe that because our language requires us to do several things, one, it is, it is um, a vehicle to enact our values and see the world in a different way. And two, it requires us to do a couple of other things. You have to be very descriptive in the Cherokee language, and you have to be very present. And those things are related to mindfulness. So... We've been exploring Cherokee principles of mental health, like depression. And I've learned that depression in Cherokee means ska, or the word is ska udantan. So if we explore that word, ska means back at us, and udantan is thinking. Now, the interesting concept of thinking is that it's not just in our brain, is it? It's in our heart as well. So depression in the Cherokee language means that you're thinking or working back towards yourself. So the natural solution is in our word. It's to be reconnected with our family, with with uh, the natural world, with our tribe to be engaged again. So the, the language is a really, to me, critical place, uh, next step to go. Yes, just so powerful. And I know Tom Belt personally, and, and he's a, a great, great person. I know he's just such a, a wonderful leader and champion for, for the Cherokee language. So it's great to hear that he's involved. And uh, also other elders that are contributing to these language programs that are, are geared towards promoting these uh, behavioral health improved outcomes. So it sounds like it's really important for researchers such as yourself and Joseph to work closely with communities in designing these programs and these approaches. Is that accurate? That's right. That's right. So um, how I usually 
do research projects is with a community advisory board. So we have three community advisory boards going right now. And, you know, uh, these are our experts in, in language and culture and values and traditional foods. And so we are really working to sort of decolonize or indigenize or Cherokeeize this research process in which the experts are our elders, are our speakers, and they are um, the leaders and decision makers of these projects. Melissa, what influenced you to pursue this type of research? Well, that's that's a good question. Um, I had a little bit of a flashback as Dr. Gon was talking, and I guess I'll, I'll have to say um, I'm a second-generation researcher. My father, uh, Ron Lewis, was the first American Indian to get a Ph.D. in social work, and he has been working on these issues many years before I was born, and um, he passed away several years ago, but he really has laid the framework for me um, to see that in our healthcare system, uh, we need to be able to receive the kind of care that we need. And the research shows that very clearly. One, one research article says that when you tailor the interventions, you're four times more likely to have improved um, health if it's tailored to a certain cultural community. And, um, you know, learning about watching what my dad went through, learning what my dad went through, seeing that our healthcare systems are biased and they do result um, in worsened health outcomes for our communities, that has been a big push for me. And I also have a four-year-old who we're trying to teach the Cherokee language and watching him be so excited about learning about traditional Cherokee foods and learning the language and enacting our values. Like those are the things that move me forward in the research with many other elders and speakers and, and Cherokee moms and aunties. That's sort of what keeps me going every day. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing uh, that story and, and that information and uh, condolences uh, with the loss of your father. Sounds like a, a wonderful, amazing person and a leader, uh, as you mentioned, the first Native American earn a PhD in social work. Just inspiring, truly. Let's bring in a, a, a another voice into the conversation. We have a, a younger person on the show today. He is a first-year medical student here at the University of New Mexico. Again, his name is Jonathan Sosi. Jonathan, we're learning so much today about these cultural practices, um, language, foods, incorporating some of these indigenous um, ideas into getting improved outcomes for behavioral health. And I'm curious now that you're there, a first-year medical student, do you get exposure to these types of ideas and concepts in the classes that you're taking here at UNM? Uh, to be honest, um, not really. Um, so just to give a little bit of background, um, Jonathan Sosi, um, Bitterwater clan and uh, born for the Mini Goats clan. And so I grew up uh, with uh, traditional grandparents, uh, both of which were uh, medicine people, both on my father's side and my mother's side. And so th- actually that's how they met was bec- uh, was actually through ceremony. And so as a child, I was really exposed to like traditional medicine. And uh, my grandmother was a renowned medicine woman and people from all over the reservation, from the Diné Reservation, would come to see her. So I got to see that firsthand. 
And it really goes back to this idea of like community. And it's like when someone is sick in Diné community, like everyone gathers around and they, they sing these prayers and they usually do it at night. And so right before they come, it's like, it's like an event. Like people, my grandmother would um, have family members come and they would cook this big meal and then they would like eat together and then they would go into the ceremony all night and sing. And then afterwards in the morning, really, um, when it's still dark outside, they would finish and then they would come back and then they would rest for a bit and they would eat again. And so I feel like there's this like really importance on food and like just community and just like coming together to, to kind of put all the energy together to heal one person. And I think for me, like that's how I always imagine medicine should be is just this uh, like community coming in together to, to, to help heal each other. And so, yeah, I think, uh, I think that is the basis of traditional healing for me. And as far as seeing that in where, where I go to school and in modern medicine, I don't, see it very often. Um, I do um, work at a clinic um, as part of my clinicals at a reservation community clinic. And I have to be like, I actually do see it there. Like there's like a community there, but it's like small. And so it's able to work. And so people from the community kind of, kind of everyone knows each other. And so you kind of have this coming together and in a way, um, which is not in the way that I had grown up, but there is a coming together that happens. And um, the Northern Navajo facility in Shiprock is the closest IHS facility to me. And so I feel like with that facility, the community is just too large to have that type of connection. But yeah, I think, I think community is, is very important in, in traditional healing. So, Jonathan, you mentioned your grandparents as healers, and I'm curious to know your family. Are, are they excited that you're pursuing a career in medicine? Uh, yeah. Um, so I feel like so when I was a kid, I was never interested in medicine like at all. Um, I was always like kind of the science um, geek, um, really into like engineering and stuff. Um, but my mom was my grandmother's apprentice. So um, it's kind of it's like the way that apprentices are chosen in the family is also something that I'm learning more about, but um, it's like, it's an honor to be chosen to be an apprentice of a medicine person. And so my mother was chosen in my family and in her family to be the apprentice. So I think that's also what exposed me to a lot of traditional healing. And uh, once uh, my grandparents passed away, like, um, that apprenticeship kind of ended. And so um, there, I think that's where kind of my exposure kind of ended as well. But um, I think it carried on with my mom, who later became a nurse. And so she also uh, credits my grandmother. She was like, you know, she taught her how to care for people. And that's why she became a nurse. And I think uh, so right after high school, I actually joined the military. And I was going to go into the infantry like my dad. He was an airborne ranger and was drafted during Vietnam. And so when I was going in, uh, my mom pulled me aside and she was like, uh, please like um, consider a profession where you can use it 
um, outside once you've finished the military. And she's like, I really think you should go into like healthcare and some sort of medical field. And so I ended up becoming like a special forces medic. And like I said, I was never interested in medicine or anything like that. But like that experience of like taking care of people, um, it just really laid the foundation for me to go into medicine as well. And so I think, yeah, so we do have like a lineage of people who practice. Um, well, Jonathan, that sounds like a really unique route to go to medical school, um, a military career. And then I know you went to MIT where you did your undergrad. So just wonderful to know that you're just pursuing your goals and you're, and you're moving forward. We're going to talk more about that. We do have to take a short break. Anyone listening today with a question or comment, again, we're talking about indigenous practices and behavioral health. 1-800-996-2848 is the number to call. We'll be back right after this break. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, StrongHeart's Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by StrongHeart's Native Helpline. Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about Native culture, language, and spirituality as a way of healing. And we have two doctors who are looking at this part of Indigenous health on the show today. And we also have a medical student. We want to know how you incorporate Native culture in your overall wellness. So there's still time to join the conversation. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. So please give us a call. Let your comments be heard on the air. Now, before we went to break, we were listening to medical student Jonathan Sosi, and he was sharing with us his motivation for pursuing a career in medicine. He is a student at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. And uh, Jonathan, earlier we were talking about the approach with some of these practices and how it differs a little bit between an urban and a rural setting. And I know you shared that you worked there at the facility in Shiprock, so you have some experience there working in a more rural setting. But I'm curious, once you finish medical school and you become a doctor and you're out working, do you want to work in an urban setting or a rural setting? Have you thought about that? Uh, yeah, um, I'm actually kind of, to be honest, conflicted. Um, there's a part of me that wants to become very specialized, become like a neurosurgeon. And of course, those facilities are only located in urban areas. But I also want to practice um, something more like, um, you know, like cardiology, which there's a huge cardiology demand on the reservation because it's one of the leading causes of death of indigenous people over 45. So, and if we look at IHS facilities, there's, there's not, I, from what I know, there's not any um, cardiac intervention type facilities like uh, cardiac cath labs located there. And so um, I kind of want to fill in that gap as well. So, yeah, I think, I think I'm kind of conflicted. Um, I, I'm leaning more towards uh, trying to fill in the gap and fix um, the system to improve Native health. So I think that's where I'm going to go. 
And you talked earlier about, again, your family history as healers, traditional healers there in, in the Navajo Nation. And just listening to our guest today, uh, Dr. Gon and Dr. Lewis and the conversation, has it given you any ideas for, for how to incorporate some of these practices when you begin to, to, to care for Native patients in the future? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, for sure. Um, I feel uh, my upbringing gave me a very well-rounded um, approach to medicine. And so, like, I was never just, like, always, like, scientific. Like, I was, have always been open to to more um, uh, non-traditional um, type of medical care. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today and just wishing you so much success in the future. And I just always get inspired when talking to young people like yourself, pursuing your dreams, pursuing your goals, and just wish you all the success in the world. I'm looking forward to to when you uh, graduate medical school and you get out there in the community and you're serving and you're, and you're doing this work uh, and you're, you're healing and just continuing your family legacy and tradition. So best of luck to you. I'm happy for you and I'm happy for your family as well. Right. Um, just sorry, just real quick. Sure, absolutely. Uh, yeah, just uh, I think uh, going back to this idea of like urban versus rural, I think there is a difference. Um, like um, Dr. Gan had stated that uh, more urban settings are more like pan-indigenous as opposed to like reservation settings, which tend to be like one tribe, one to two tribes. And I think even like looking at Diné religion, it's like very it's complex that there's like medicine people will practice just one way of healing. Like there's warrior way and there's blessing way also known as beautiful way. And you also have protection way. And so you have these medicine people that actually specialize in these particular types of ceremonies. And so like, I feel like in urban settings, you, you don't get that, that kind of specialization. And in, in fact, you get like a kind of blending of, different tribal ceremonies and yeah i think that's something that um from what i've actually seen here in albuquerque uh the the person who does the the traditional type of healing and songs has to kind of know like the zuni um the pueblo and so like and i feel like it becomes so broad that you you do for me I feel like you need that specialization. Okay. And thanks for bringing that up. And let's bring um, Joseph back into the conversation because, Joseph, earlier you talked about um, how, how that approach is different with regard to the rural and the urban settings. And and Joseph just elaborated on that, how sometimes it's kind of a, just a, a general uh, cultural approach as, a being, as opposed to being specific to a, a tribe or a specific Native community. So I'm, I'm curious— is there data out there, like with regards to the outcomes, if it's kind of a more generalized traditional approach as opposed to something that is very tribal specific, like like um, like uh, Jonathan mentions? What are your thoughts on that, Joseph? Yeah, so it's amazing how little data we have in terms of outcomes in Indian country for any kind of therapeutic intervention, including you know counseling and psychotherapy. So we just don't have you know the kind of research approach and enough research with that interest and enough tribal communities who are, you know, willing to maybe allow that kind of research for there to be strong data that emerge. But I will say that, um, you know, one distinction that I would draw in two projects I was involved in was 
the, the Blackfeet Nation addiction program that I already talked about, where we together developed the Blackfeet Culture Camp as a Blackfeet-grounded therapeutic approach to manage addiction. Um, and that was very culturally specific. It was by Blackfeet people for Blackfeet people, and therefore, you know, in, in uh, keeping with a very distinctive approach that's culturally based for that community. I've also worked, of course, with the Urban Indian Health Clinic in Detroit, which we discussed. They commissioned me and my student researchers to develop, you know, a way to incorporate traditional healing into the health services there. And because it was so multi-tribal and diverse, um, we uh, really decided to move forward on their guidance and with the consultation of the elders in the health clinic uh, to develop a sweat lodge-based curriculum for introducing urban Indian uh, people to traditional spirituality, um, particularly for those who had had no prior exposure to this. The sweat lodge is really interesting. You know, it's not, um, it's not just a prayer or smudging a tiny little. It's, a, it's an ensemble of a bunch of practices that come together from prayer and singing and pipe ceremonies and water ceremonies and that sort of thing, all in a particular coherent ceremony. And yet the sweat lodge is so prolific across Indian country that people from most tribes can uh, understand, recognize, and find benefit and inspiration in the sweat lodge ceremony. So while it's true that in developing it for the Detroit urban Indian community, we privilege Anishinaabe approaches, we privilege uh, Haudenosaunee approaches to the sweat lodge ceremony, even though it had um, that sort of contour to it, it, it translated very broadly. And so I think that's another example of a way in which to think about bona fide ceremonies that are understood to be involved in healing and health that can reach a broad swath of multi-tribal people. Okay. And as we continue to see this push for, uh, or just this movement of more and more Native people moving to urban environments, I, I think we're probably just going to have to 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 do the best we can, right, with regard to some of these cultural practices. And, and obviously, some is better than none. Isn't that probably accurate? Certainly. And also, um, Native people circulate. You know, we, we leave home for various purposes, but we go home. And if we need health and help, um, and, and we don't find what we need in an urban community, but we want to take advantage of traditional practices, we can often go home for that. So, you know, I think it's also recognizing that, um, you know, there's life, uh, lifespan developmental processes in play when we migrate and then, and then return home and those sorts of things. So mm-hmm. it's not like we're necessarily cut off from the distinctive stuff at home either. I'd like to bring Melissa into the conversation again. And Melissa, I think probably many of our listeners are totally on board with fostering this intersection between indigenous practices and Western medicine. But I'm curious to know, and I think our listeners are as well, what other barriers remain when it comes to this awareness among other doctors and even patients when we talk about these indigenous practices in modern medical therapies and treatments? Sure. So specifically within healthcare settings, um, I worked with a team to look at sort of, you know, what happens for an indigenous patient and um, navigating healthcare and they experience biased care, worse care, reduced health outcomes, um, and are also part of, you know, part of that issue is are, are they're less likely to be represented in a clinic or in a hospital. So one thing that our team has worked on for a number of years 
is training healthcare professionals to work with Indigenous patients. And that is like a seven-module training, and um, we, we've piloted that at several sites, universities, and clinics. And, um, you know, we found that it has improved people's uh, beliefs around um, Indigenous knowledge, ethnocultural beliefs, and people believe that it will improve their care. Um, the training really has a lot of content um, that is trying to address the bias that is out there. So the majority of information that people have, including people that be go, on, go on to become um, healthcare professionals about Native people, is false and it's biased, and it comes from false information or a lack of information and in, in education or historical textbooks, K through 12, entertainment industry, mascotry. And unfortunately, healthcare providers bring that with them into care, and that results into worsened care. And we've seen lots of case examples of that, and there are lots of really important studies that have been done that demonstrate that that bias exists there. Mm -hmm. um, another important study was that uh, physicians, they rated all the types of complementary and alternative medicines and traditional indigenous healing, they trusted the least. So we have a long ways to go as far as, uh, you know, Jonathan uh, talked about um, training that needs to happen in medical schools for healthcare professionals and even K through 12. And um, yeah, I, I could talk about that a lot, but maybe I'll just I'll just stop right there. Okay. Well, where can people, our listeners, learn more about this curriculum, this training that you just shared? That sounds really interesting. Sure. Um, yeah, people are are welcome to contact me. Um, we are working to get it up on a website. It's supposed to go live this summer. Um, so um, my, my email is lewis, M-E-L-I, at health.missouri.edu. We have been gathering data. We also do community advisory boards at each of the sites. So it is tailored to that specific location. And, um, you know, like, like Jonathan was speaking about, it's been challenging because some of the places, um, you know, are, are cities that have, you know, 15 or 20 different tribes in that state. And so we work to provide uh, regionally specific content, and we work to partner with elders and culture keepers to deliver that information to the healthcare professionals okay. as best we can. Thank you, Melissa. And, and Joseph, um, where are some other places or programs or researchers that are making progress in, in raising this awareness about indigenous medicine? Yeah, well, there's one really important initiative that's been going on for a bit coming out um, from Dr. Dave Wilson at the Tribal Health Research Office in the National Institutes of Health. Um, he, he sponsored through his office, along with some other federal co-sponsors, a traditional medicine summit um, in November of 2019 that I was pleased to be involved in helping to organize. And we hosted 15 traditional healers um, from all, all around the country, plus a bunch of uh, health service, mental health administrators and providers, just to start to have some conversations about how research might be undertaken in a sensitive and supportive and effective way with traditional healers about traditional healing and the ways that that could be integrated with health services. 
services. So there's that research component, but there's also like reimbursement and the financial aspects of healthcare. How would we compensate healers for providing services and so on? So I think the intent, and you'd have to talk to Dr. Wilson just to see an update, but the idea was certainly to have more of these meetings uh, to convene and, and discuss these things, and, and that had a public component that people could attend. So I think that's uh, one important way. Another you know, I'm president of the Society of Indian Psychologists. Our annual convention, you know, happens every June. This year it's virtual. Anyone can come. And so it's June 27th, 28th online. And we talk a lot about culture and tradition and healing in terms of behavioral health at that meeting. So everyone's welcome. Um, finally, I've written and thought a lot about these issues. You know, my last name is Gone, the English word. Our family name comes from an ancestor that was named Gone to War, but that got clipped to Gone when he went to boarding school. Um, so Gone to War is my website. And there's a lot of information there, too. I'm happy to talk with any of your listeners at any time. Okay. And, and Joseph, do, do patients just ask a doctor when they want traditional elements to healing? Or, you know, who kind of introduces their, or initiates that conversation? Should it come from the patient? Should it come from the medical practitioner? What's the best strategy there? Well, I think the best strategy would for doctors and, and psychologists and healthcare providers to sort of inquire when they're working with an Indigenous person. But um, that's not what's happening. And in fact, many patients and clients feel reluctant to mention anything because of the very attitudes that Melissa just mentioned about physicians harboring prejudice against. So I think that it's incumbent upon us, unfortunately, shouldn't be, but unfortunately to raise this as an issue or a concern and to ask for guidance or support in that re regard. Um, otherwise, it's not likely to be attended to in most instances. Okay. And we have about a minute before we have to wrap up the show, but Jonathan, how can our listeners uh, learn more about you in your journey through medical school? Um, <laughs> Are you on social media or anything? Uh, follow you? Not really. <laughs> um, but just to go back on this idea of like resources, I just wanted to put in a plug in for the um, Native Health Initiative, also known as NHI, um, here in Albuquerque. Um, I've Going back to this idea, like those ideas don't exist, but we have to create them for ourselves. And so like NHI is like one such thing. Absolutely. Well, we've reached the end of the hour once again, and I would like to thank our guests, Joseph Gaughan, Melissa Lewis, and Jonathan Sosi for insights into indigenous cultural practices in modern medicine. Please join us tomorrow for a discussion about growing opportunities and concerns for tribes as cannabis legalization expands. I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one-of-a-kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes, healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com.
Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.